I invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. Continuing to make our way through this third verse at a snail's pace. Um, but there's just so much rich theology in this passage, so taking our time here. But before we read it, um, I want to ask you a question to think about. What's, what's an area of your life that you feel you must control? What, what's the thing that, that occupies your thoughts when you're not trying to think about anything? What do you wake up with on your mind? What's on your mind as you go to sleep? How devastated are you when the things that you're planning, when they don't go according to plan? When things don't work out the way you had hoped? I think parents feel this pressure to protect every aspect of the life of their children to, some, to the point that their lives literally will revolve around them. Fathers can feel the need to provide for their families, a good thing, but it gets to the point that their lives revolve around their work. Single men and women can get so preoccupied with finding a spouse, another good thing, that they lose sight of so many opportunities unique to their station in life. And we can go into every, every person in this room, right? There's an area that you feel like you've got a, a perfect plan for your life. And, and you do everything you can to make, make it work. I know I felt that sense of pressure uh, when we started this church. And there's this sense of it's all on it's all riding on on me, my wife and kids. We've got to be we've got to be dynamite in every area of life. We've got to make this thing work if this church is going to be successful. And you feel this pressure for success, or you feel like even if there's a failure, that it's 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 all on your shoulders. Well, the the culture has been challenging. The, the light of the gospel and this community of, of Jewish Christians that is gathered together in Rome, they're feeling this pressure. And the author of Hebrews is, is trying to get them to, to focus on the Son, right? to enhance their view of Jesus, to elevate him. Because when they recognize his glory, when they recognize his sovereignty, when they when they see his role as the sustainer of the world, then they'll, they won't think about looking elsewhere. They won't think about themselves at all. They'll be enthralled by the sun. And maybe sometimes when we think about just our own situation, we, we think, well, we cannot, because we cannot see the sun, there's this, we mistakenly assume that uh, he's uninvolved in the minutia of our daily lives. And he's not concerned about those things that concern us. And, um, and so we've got to deal with them ourselves, right? We're on our own in these areas. Um, and we kind of separate our, our personal lives and our private lives from, from Christianity or from Christ. 
but he's wanting them to recognize that if they could see the glory of the nature of God and, and they, could, they could understand the son as, as his role of, of sustaining this world, which we'll see today, then they just simply need to trust in him. They need to rest in what he has done for them. Because by sheer force of will, they're not going to be able to attempt to secure the future that they've planned for themselves. He's in control. If he's the sustainer, then we align ourselves to his will. We don't, we don't try to curry his favor to accomplish our will. We align ourselves with him. So the son's physical absence doesn't diminish his interest in us. It's just because he's not here with us physically doesn't mean he's not interested in all the details of our lives. Nor does it diminish our dependence upon him. And we think this is all of ourselves now. This is on us. This is on our shoulders. No, again, it doesn't diminish his interest in us, nor does it diminish our dependence upon him. That's what we're going to recognize from this one phrase in verse 3, that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding this passage this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for, once again, speaking to us. Lord, every time we open your word, we can hear from you. And so our, our hearts need to be softened to that. You, we must depend upon you even now to open our eyes, to open our ears, that we would see and hear the truth and respond to it appropriately by your Spirit. Lord, we, we expect to hear from you. We expect you to do a work in our lives that your word will not return void. Lord, we, we know and trust that you are at work in your church and in your people. And so help us, Lord, to align with your purposes. Help us to see your mission and to submit ourselves under that. Lord, to, to let go of our ambitions and our goals, especially where they don't align with yours. Lord, and help us to rest and trust that you are in control and that you are sustaining all things according to your perfect will, for your glory and for our good. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Read with me Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Amen. This is God's holy word. So we've seen now several weeks of the description of the sun. We're, we're, we're enhancing our view of the sun, and here we see that the sun sustains God's world. Uh, there are really two primary uses of this word, upholding. 
in Scripture, the more common function is to take it in the sense of sustaining. It refers to carrying or bearing up something. Um, you know, to, to carry a jug of water from one location to another. It's, it's, a, it's along those lines, right? So he's bearing them up. But the word can also have the sense of carrying things forward or moving them along, almost used as a metaphor, carrying, carrying the world forward, carrying God's purposes forward. That would be the idea of God ruling over all matters, that he is sovereign in everything, The Westminster Divines reference this verse to define God's works of providence. In the shorter catechism, question 11, as well as the larger catechism, question 18, both ask what what are God's works of providence, and in the answer, it, it refers to his powerful preserving in light of this verse. God's powerful preserving of all of his creatures and their actions. So with this latter sense in mind, John Owen points to the throne of God in Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 15 through 21. If you've read that, you'll recall the, the throne of God has these wheels. It's this, it's this image that's hard to even picture as you're reading it because it just doesn't, it's like, okay, I, I'm trying to understand what this looks like, but there's a throne with wheels that have the ability to turn in all directions and they're covered, the, the rims of the wheel are covered in eyes. Right? So it sees all things. And the point is, it's a, it's a picture of God accomplishing his will according to his purposes in his plan. Right? It'll, it'll turn whichever direction he wants. And he is seated on that, God is seated on that throne. So that's the image that John Owen points to to reference this idea of, of the sun upholding all things or upholding the universe it's a picture of god accomplishing all his holy will he orders all things according to his sovereign sovereign will and i really like how ff bruce puts it in his commentary he says he upholds the universe not like atlas supporting a dead weight on his shoulders but as one who carries all things forward on their appointed course so most commentators, at least the ones that I'm, I'm reading, have, have both ideas in view. They would say the author is probably referencing both ideas, that God is sustaining and carrying things along according to God's purposes. But to whom is the author of Hebrews applying this language? Who sustains and governs God's perfect plan? It's none other than the Son. This is where this would have been revolutionary and radical for this Jewish community who has always read in the Old Testament of God sustaining all things, of God and and the divine attributes of of his sovereign will, of his providence. Any Jew who attended synagogue for a time would have known that God preserves the universe. We read that in Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 6. This was the prayer that was read to the people as they were renewing and restoring their, their relationship with God through confession of sin and and through praise and adoration, one of the things they acknowledge is that God is the one who preserves the universe. God alone knows all things. And so Isaiah describes this omniscient creator in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 12 through 26. He says, God knows the precise measurements of everything he created. And he, he asked the question, where were you? Where were you when I made these things? You see similar language in Job. 
He, didn't, he can, doesn't consult anyone when he established the boundaries of the water and the height of the mountains. God is the Holy One who cannot be compared to anyone. That's the description of God in the Old Testament. He is unique. He is holy. He is set apart to worship or look to anything else as God is idolatry. And here now the author's describing the Son, who he started by saying he's the heir of all things. The ESV kind of obscures, well, it does obscure that the author is coming back around to that same phrase, all things here. That the Son is literally said to sustain or uphold all things. So like all of the other descriptors, this one also identifies the divine nature of the Son. He's the heir of all things. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. He's the radiance of God's glory. And he's the upholder of all things. Jesus, in his ministry, was continually pointing out things in this world that would illustrate his message. Throughout the Gospels, you find that. Jesus describing the physical world that the disciples that are following him are inhabiting. He's pointing to things. He's referencing things that they could just simply look to the side and see. One example, he, he comforts his anxious listeners by telling them to consider the way in which God clothed the lilies of the field in Matthew 6. So from a human perspective, Jesus understood a great deal about the world in which he inhabited because he knew its origin. And the same power by which the world was created, the Son continues to wield as he sustains the world. Namely, by his word. The world remains and history continues because the Son speaks. That's whether you acknowledge it or not. No amount of opposition or persecution can thwart the Son's mission. Paul would say it like this in Colossians 1.17, that in him all things hold together. Peter says that the same word that created the heavens and the earth now stores them up for the fiery judgment, recognizing that everything is being, is being upheld by the Son, by this same word. And he will do so until he comes to bring judgment at his return. So this explanation, it, it leaves no room for the deists who proposed that God would, would set the evolutionary process in motion and, and then allow the laws of nature to keep it all going. God didn't start the process and then leave the world alone. Natural law is obedient to the commandments of the Son. There is interaction, therefore, between God and natural law. In fact, natural law would fail were it not for the powerful word of the Son sustaining it. But maybe the, the more pressing question for us today is how does the Son sustain all things? We, we just said by the word of his power, but how does that look to us? Theonomists like Roussos Rushduni and Greg Bonson have argued that we should consider the civil laws of the Old Testament as a divine blueprint for modern society. If the laws of the Old Testament represent God's application of his moral law, then the only alternative 
to that would be to adopt man-made laws based upon some inferior standard of justice. And so I'm just describing theonomy. And, and, and it seems to, that it would find some support in this passage, right? Is Christ not ruling and reigning over both his church and his world? Which square inch of the universe did he hand over to Satan? It might be how Abraham Kuyper would put it. Or to make the, ca- the connection to our passage clear, which part of the universe is Christ not upholding? All right, Christ is ruling. He is reigning. He is upholding all things, including every institution. That would include the church, the state, the academy, the marketplace, society, family. And you say, but some of those are a wreck right now. <clears throat> Many of them, if not all of them, right, to some degree. So in what sense is he upholding them? Right, so there's, there's a sense in which we would say a hearty amen. Christ is seated on his throne, absolutely. He has been given all authority and power. He is wielding that power to uphold all things. Ultimately, no one disagrees with that. The question boils down to how he is reigning. Right, what are the instruments of his reign? And there are basically three competing views within the Reformed camp, and I'll just describe them. I recognize that probably among this group, all three of these views are represented. All right, so I'm going to try to be gracious here in all of them and just explain them to you. The first would be, and, and these are not the first in chronological order. Right? These, this has been something that's been discussed in the church from the beginning. But the first I want to point out is the Kuyperian sphere sovereignty view. This is Abraham Kuyper. Right? He presents various spheres of authority and power, all of which are subsumed under the reign of Christ. For instance, Christ rules over the sphere of the family, but he primarily rules through the Father. Christ rules over the state through civil authorities. Christ rules over the church through religious authorities. Then you can go on and and think of all the various spheres in society. The goal of the church, then, is to transform each sphere of society to adopt a Christian worldview, to align themselves with the will of God, or you might say to Christianize everything. Now, this results in a loss of any distinction, or at least a a minimization of the distinction between the sacred and the secular. It's sometimes referred to as mono-kingdom theology as opposed to two-kingdom theology, which we'll define in, in a moment. But Matthew Tuniga summarizes the, the, the problem this way. When we emphasize all of life as kingdom activity, just as when we view all of life as worship, we lose sight of what is distinctive and vital about the church itself. And so there's, there's something of a tension there. Right? If, if, if all of life is, for king, is, is kingdom activity, if all of life is worship, what is, what is the way we distinguish between the church and the culture? Do we make a distinction? Should we? Is it, is it false thinking to make a distinction? Right? So that's, that's really the, the, the model of the Kuyperian sphere sovereignty view. Then you have this view of the Reformed two kingdoms. I would say the most prominent proponent of this today would be Van, David Van Drunen. And he pre- presents the two kingdoms as church and state, essentially. Now, he nuances, and this is an oversimplification of all of these views. So, 
hopefully you'll forgive where I'm not giving greater clarity. But Van Drunen essentially sees the two kingdoms as church and state, and he points most often to Calvin for this. Christ rules over the church through his moral law, and then he rules over the state through natural law. And the challenge here is that there's almost no overlap between these two kingdoms. The church ought to have very little to do with the state and vice versa. Thinking about the historical significance of this doctrine, I think, is, is helpful. Thinking about how, how this came about during the Protestant Reformation, Rome reserved all authority for the church, okay? To the point that they said the magistrate can have the sword, but he carries it out according to the, the desires of the church. And the church has the ultimate authority. So then, of course, when Protestants began to rebel against Roman uh, teaching, Rome claimed the authority of the magistrate's sword to squelch that rebellion. So Luther used the two kingdoms doctrine to refute the claims of Rome. And you can see there's a, there's a lot of implications to thinking this way, but I think you have to go back even further and think about the, the classical two kingdoms view. This would be the third view. Augustine labeled them the city of God and the city of man, and you might think of them as spiritual and earthly realms, uh, um, visible and invisible realms, both of which include the church and the state. And so Christ reigns over the invisible spiritual realm by the power of his spirit in the context of the covenant community. Every Christian has earthly responsibilities that they must carry out to the glory of God. He doesn't remove his faith when he enters public office. And Christians can and should serve in public office. Or any other secular institution. Wherever they are, they do so to the glory of God. There's not this massive separation of, of spheres as we get from, from the first view. I mean from the second view. So in conjunction with all of this, we should also emphasize that there are two ages. Right? This present age, which is characterized by evil an age to come which is characterized by righteousness. So you have an evil age, this present evil age, and you have an age to come characterized by righteousness. Christians are living then between these two ages. There's an already experience of the foretaste of that eternal kingdom within the church, but they're not yet experiencing it in its fullness. So again, here's, I think Tuniga is helpful here. And I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, Tuninga. He says this, thus the church is the only corporate expression of the kingdom in this age. See how he's limiting the use of the language kingdom to the church. It's only as we join ourselves to the body of Christ, the body of those who hold fast to Jesus, that we participate in the kingdom that is coming. And although we witness our citizenship in this kingdom and every single thing that we do in this age, doing everything as unto the Lord, the primary form this witness to Christ's lordship takes is that of submission, service, and sacrifice in an often hostile and oppressive world. I, I think that third view does do justice, the most justice to, to the way scripture presents our role as the church. 
But I want to acknowledge there are valid aspects to, to each one of these views. Think about Kuiper's presentation. It's a, it's a robust presentation and, and model that seeks to take every thought captive to obey Christ. There's not one element of, of your life that, that you can simply disregard God's, God's opinion on. This is, my, this is my secular self, and that's my Christian self. And take every thought captive to obey Christ. That means whether you're thinking about the church or the state. All thoughts, ideas, should find themselves sufficiently grounded in the authority of Christ. And I also find value in David Van Drunen's critique of an overly politicized church or one that is obsessed with triumphal cultural transformation. It's all too easy for a church to compromise the centrality of the gospel. What we get from Ephesians 4, the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry by battling every secular, political, and social issue. And here's where Kevin DeYoung warns, and I think he, he gets it right, the church and its beatific message of Christ crucified and risen for sinners is ultimately more important than the culture. The one is not irrelevant to the other or disinterested in the other, but only the church will last forever, and only the church is promised to be built by Jesus himself. Now, I'll admit, this is a thoroughly amillennial perspective, so if a, if a post-millennialist believes differently about how this, how this plays itself out, right? That the culture will experience a golden age, according to postmillennialists. It, it will be transformed and changed. And so there's no, no need to ultimately make a distinction between the church and culture. And so eventually the church and the culture are united in fulfilling God's will on earth as it is in heaven. And that at some point takes place in this present age. And the question is not so much then how Christ is reigning, but when will his reign become effectual in the present age? Or when does this transition into that, that golden age? All right, enough of that technical information. Regardless of your theological or philosophical persuasions, we should all recognize the tremendous weight that is lifted off our shoulders by this verse. The success of this church is not resting on me or the elders. That's not to say we have no responsibilities, but it does ease the expanding pressure of trying to control the outcome of every decision the church has to make. And you can trust the Son will continue to uphold the universe until he returns. And then for all eternity, as we enjoy our rule and reign with him, the pressure is not on you. You can trust that whatever evil, this is how the Heidelberg Catechism puts it in question 26. You can trust that whatever evil he sends upon you in this veil of tears, he will turn to your good. You can rest in the safety of your Savior's arms, even in the face of hardship. You can lay all of your anxious thoughts and fears about the future at his feet. Even as he sits upon his heavenly throne, he is sustaining all things. Christ is preserving his church in the midst of worldly pressure. In fact, he's using evil for his own 
good intentions and purposes, even as we considered in Sunday school class this morning. That means if you believe in him, he is also actively sustaining your faith too. Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's a reference to his return. And so when we understand the fullness of what Christ has accomplished and how he continues to operate in this world, the only appropriate response is, is one of praise. And that's what gives us the strength to persevere. And so I'll conclude with this excellent turn of phrase from Raymond Brown's commentary on this passage. He says this, these first century readers would be less likely to turn from him. Remember the situation of this small group of Jewish believers in Rome feeling pressure. They're feeling pressure in, in two ways. One, from the, the culture, right? From this secular culture, which probably quite recently, within, the, the, within years prior to this letter being written, um, have been the target of, of Nero's persecution, right? where Nero blamed the Christian community for setting Rome on fire and burning down 10 of its 15 districts, which more than likely Nero himself set the fire so that he could rebuild it in his own glorious image. So he blamed the Christians for that, and, and they are now feeling pressure from the culture, but then they're also feeling pressure from, their, from other Hebrews, from those who are still going to the Jewish synagogue and who are, who are saying, you need to, to leave that Christian church and come back to the synagogue and, and worship here. So they're, they're receiving that persecution from both sides here, and what... What Raymond Brown says here is that these first century readers would be less likely to turn away from Christ in adversity if they look to him in adoration. So we, if we are praising the Son and adoring the Son because of all that we know is true of him, then we will be less likely to depart from him. He goes on to say, the opening sentence of the letter are designed to bring them and us to our knees. Only then can we hope to find or to stand firmly on our feet. So the reason why we persevere is because of our union with Christ and our communion with him. And we sense that communion when we gather and sit under this preaching of his word, when we pray to him, and when we celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, we enjoy that communion with him. These are the ordinary means of grace by which Christ is sustaining your faith. And so let us thank him for that. Heavenly Father, it is a blessing to consider the way in which you're not only upholding all things in this world, but you are personally invested in, in upholding us in working in our lives, in bringing us all the way home, in completing that work that you began. And so we thank you, Father, for sending the Son. We thank you, Son, for dying on the cross in our place, for taking our sin and shame upon yourself and for giving us your righteousness, that we can be adopted as children 
that we can come to you as children to a father, making our requests to you, knowing that you lovingly hear us and respond to us, and that you're capable of taking care of us. Lord, we recognize your sovereignty. We recognize your authority. And we thank you that we have the privilege of partaking and participating in your kingdom purposes in this world and have been built up and equipped by your word and by this sacrament and even by our praying and our singing. Lord, all of these elements of this worship service are meant to give you the praise and glory that you deserve and to change us, to cause us to be aligned with your will, to understand your purposes. And Lord, as we consider the, the challenges that we face that are, that are quite similar to the challenges of this original audience, the cultural pressure that we feel, Lord, may we stand firm because we are continually turning our eyes to the sun and looking upon him with adoration and giving him the glory. Lord, that is only due to God. And so we do worship you as triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so continue to sustain us for your glory. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen.